Well, t- today we look at uh, message number two on the Sermon on the Mount. Today we look at some crazy kind of countercultural ideas um, that we don't fully understand today. Um, so, therefore, I've I, I title the message "Beata What," um, because it's the Beatitudes. Um, but it's kind of one of those things where you, it's like, huh, that doesn't make any sense because what you're saying contradicts what reality tells us should be the case. Uh, but you see, w- one of the things that Christians are really good at is we like to read Scripture without Jesus in it. And, and so you, what we're going to talk about is that you can't look at the Beatitudes and take Jesus out. Because if you do, they don't make any sense at all. And so we have to look at the Beatitudes with Jesus in the picture. So Beatitude is kind of a a supreme blessedness. Um, You don't get any more blessed than to be included in these Beatitudes. Another way that you might translate uh, the blessed part in the Beatitudes is happy. And so we're going to look at kind of how that plays into. And because when we look at it, instead of blessed, we say happy. It's kind of like, wow, I'm not happy when that happens. But again, we have to look at it through the lens of Jesus. The Beatitudes or kind of a a clarification or a development of Jesus' primary theme that he talks about, but also how he lives his life. And he's referring to the availability of the kingdom of God. We'll come back to that in just a second. So the Beatitudes, first and foremost, are not teachings on how to be blessed. That's not what they are. They're not instructions to really do anything. They do not indicate conditions that are especially pleasing to God or good for human beings. No one is actually being told that they are better off for being poor or for mourning or being persecuted and so on. Or that the conditions listed are recommended ways to well-being before God and others. Nor are the Beatitudes indications of who will be on top after the Jesus revolution. They're explanations. They're illustrations drawn from the immediate setting and the present availability through a relationship with Jesus Christ. So these are realities that can be known to us through our relationship with Jesus. You see, Jesus is really kind of casting a vision for his church, for the body of Christ. He's really casting a vision for what we will see in the body of Christ. In, within the Beatitudes, there's this kind of uh, relational disposition You see, it's easy for us to reflect on the Beatitudes as 
as somebody who, who's blessed because of their relationship with God solely. But you see, this relational disposition is a person who's blessed, but it's also in reference to not just your relationship with God, but your relationship with yourself and your relationship with others. So starting in verse or chapter 5 of Matthew, starting in verse 1, It says, now when Jesus saw the crowds, he went up on a mountaintop and, and sat down. His disciples came to him and he began to teach them. He said, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed in spirit, those who are poor in spirit. It's about having a true sense of guilt, of guilt and helplessness and the need for God's grace and his mercy. To be poor in spirit, we must acknowledge our sin, feel the weight of that sin, and understand that we are helpless to do anything for ourselves to free us from that sin. You see, being poor in spirit was talking about what's inside. It was about being without God. You see kind of the connection, some might see the connection anyway, with step one from AA, if you're familiar with those at all. Step one is acknowledging that you need help. How do you have to acknowledge that you need help? You must first admit to yourself that you're powerless to do anything to help yourself. That you need somebody else to step in and help you. And when you do that, you're acknowledging that you are poor in spirit. When we acknowledge that we are sinners and that we are poor in spirit, that we need God, then the kingdom of heaven is yours. It's available to you. The poverty of spirit is not speaking about weakness of character, but rather a person's relationship with God. Dallas Willard says it like this. He says, blessed are the spiritual zeros, the spiritually bankrupt, deprived, and deficient, the spiritual beggars, those with a wisp of religion, when the kingdom of heaven comes upon them. The first beatitude is not about being humble-minded, it's about saying, I need help. It's about a spiritual poverty. Verse 4, he says, Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Remember I said that another way to translate blessed here is happy? 
Okay, now read that again. Happy are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. <laughs> no one's shouting amen, and I know this is United Methodist Church, so we don't do that anyway. But I know like no one's shouting, jumping up and down, saying, yes, I'm happy that I'm mourning today. No, like, but why aren't we? Spouses who lose their mate, a parent who, with the gut-wrenching grief and depression over the death of a young child, the grief that we mourn because of what's done to us, but you see, this isn't just referring to something that happens to us. You see, Jesus is talking about a mourning that also happens when a community loses a police officer who have committed their life to serving and protecting their community. The people in that community, they mourn. The parents mourn when their child, their adult child grows up and has a child and it dies. The parents mourn with the parents. It's not just us who mourn for ourselves, but it's a mourning for others. But you see, people who mourn are not happy in their heavy, heavy weighing hearts. No, they're not happy in that their happiness is in the fact that they will be comforted. That's where the happiness comes from. You see, when you have a faith in you that says, you know what, I know that I'm mourning, I know that there's sadness in my heart, but I also know that my God will comfort me. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for thou God is with me. He's with you. He will comfort you. Verse 5. We don't believe this whatsoever as a world, as a society. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. The meek are those who suffer and who have been humbled. Yet they do not seek revenge, but God's glory in the welfare for others. One thing up front that we need to understand about meek is that it does not equal weak. You see, our world tells us that if you're a meek person, you're weak. That you can't stand up for the violations that come against you, the injustices that happen to you. You're not strong enough. You're not man enough to do what you need to do. Oh, I would beg to say that it takes a bigger man. And I say men because men struggle with this a whole lot more than women do. It takes a bigger man to not retaliate. It takes a bigger man to not seek revenge for injustices that have been done to you. It means the meek lovingly trust Jesus and hope in God's timing 
and God's justice. If you want to be a little humanly twisted-minded about this, um, this might help you out a little bit. Um, One way to think about it is your justice, your revenge that you want to do, pales in comparison if you get out of the way and let God take care of it. Think about that. In this verse, meekness is made in connection to land, an inheritance that comes about. It says that the blessed are the meek, for unlike the thief, when property and land is stolen, they don't go out and seek revenge. But notice how Jesus refers to how the meek will be blessed. With what? With the earth. Last time I checked, the earth is a lot bigger than land. Land is just a little section. He said the whole earth. Verse 6, For those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Those who love God and and God's will with their heart, soul, mind, and strength, because of this, they put aside their own passions and desires in order for God's will to be done. To those who pursue righteousness, Jesus promises that they will be filled. And the word filled means satisfied, bloated, filled to overflowing. The metaphor expresses absolute and utter satisfaction. They will find a kingdom society where love, peace, justice, and holiness shape the entirety of creation. Not just a little in your stomach, but full. The picture I get is what I feel like. I don't know that any of them exist anymore. But um, when you go to like um, Sirloin Stockade or Ryan's, you know how you feel when you're walking out? Yeah, yeah, I mean, you feel like you're walking like this type of thing. And like that's like, think about that in terms of spiritual health. In terms of your soul being completely filled and overflowing. Verse 7, blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. The word merciful does not describe this shadow of virtue, of niceness, or tolerance in what our Western culture might say but concrete actions of love, compassion, sympathetic grace to those who are oppressed 
and to those who have sinned. We don't, we don't look to get even. We look to say, what's going on in your life? You know, I, I come home and I tell Jennifer story after story, and she probably gets tired of hearing me substitute teaching. It's not really substitute teaching. It's substitute babysitting. But, you know, every kid that is defiant, which is a lot of them, the first thing that comes in my mind is what in the world is going on in your life? Why? Do you feel like this is how you have to treat other people? There was a girl that I've coached. And this teacher and I talked before she left half day. And she was like, this girl is such a sweet girl. But the things that she says to the other kids is horrible. She was like, and I can't catch her. Because she's the sweetest thing to me, but she turns and she says some of the hateful things to them. And they come tell me, and it's like, what am I supposed to do? Because I don't see it, I don't hear it. And she was like, I think she just wants attention. I was like, yeah, I've coached her. But I didn't get that impression. And so she came into class. When she left class, I wrote the note to the teacher. You are correct. She wants attention. She did everything in her possible imagination to get me to focus on her the whole time. And it was like, why? What's going on? I know some of her story. Not all of it. But there's abandonment issues. She, I don't know that she knows what love is from both parents. To be merciful is to look past what someone is giving you and to say, what's really going on? What's really going on in your life? I forget who this, this situation happened with. But it was pretty much like a bad day for all of us in the family. And she went to fast food somewhere and she was waiting on the food and the kid asked her, so how's your day? And Jennifer asked, well, do you want the honest answer? Or do you want the, the answer that everyone's going to give you? And he was like, no one's ever said that before. He's kind of like, I don't know what to do with that. But they literally sat there and had a conversation. He was a younger kid, wasn't he? That you kind of wouldn't expect. And he starts sharing kind of the mess that he's going through. 
And Jennifer started sharing, like, so, and the, Samantha or Ariana's just standing there like, wow, this is happening. But, you know, when they both left the conversation, they both felt like they had been heard. You see, that's the kingdom of God. That's how it should be. But what do we do? How's your day? Oh, I'm great. I'm wonderful. My cat, I just ran over it on the way here. But I'm not going to tell you that because I'm great and wonderful and I've got to be chipper and happy when I come to church because that's what everyone wants. No one wants to carry any of my mess. They want to see the best that you have to offer. That is the biggest farce I have seen in any church. The best church I've been in is Recovery Group. That's the best church I've ever been in. I'm just being flat out honest with you. And they weren't all Christians. They didn't all say the nicest things. Trust me, I wish they're like I could scrub some of the stories that they tell you out of my mind. But I can't, unfortunately. But it brings to reality exactly the depravity that they go through when they're battling addiction. But you know what? They were there for each other. They didn't expect each other. When one of them started lying about what actually happened, one of them said, that's a bunch of, and tell us what actually happened. Because they wanted to know. Because it's only in, in them sharing that they could actually help them. Why is it that people who don't know God sometimes know more about being there for each other than the people in the church do? James 2, verses 12 and 13. This isn't up there, Samantha, so you don't have to move forward there. It says, speak and act as those who are going to be judged by the law that gives freedom. Because judgment without mercy will be shown to anyone who has not been merciful. Mercy triumphs over judgment. Verse 8, Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. The pure in heart know full well the temptations to seek the external kind of praises that society shows, to seek those pure hands and, and those pure observation observances from others and kind of that pure reputation in the community. We want, we want to have a spotless reputation. Why do we want to have a spotless reputation in the community? Because the world says to be somebody important, you have to be perfect. Don't let them see your weakness. Because they'll call it out as soon as they see it. Why would I never run for any political office whatsoever? Because the first thing they look for is your weakness. But you see, I believe 
when used correctly, your weaknesses can be your best strengths. Because a good leader will say, you know what, I'm weak in this thing. I'm weak in this area. So what am I going to do? I'm going to find somebody to come alongside me that that is their strength. So that they can be better at this than I am. But what do we do? We don't applaud that leader for being a good leader. We say, oh, well, yeah, you're weak and you're not good at that, so you had to bring somebody in to do it for you, but we elected you. Why is that? Why is weakness a bad thing? See, it goes all back to we have to be perfect in front of each other. Don't show your weaknesses to each other. You see, the pure in heart, however, choose to see God as a person to be loved and to be made the first priority in your life. The pure in heart are pure in heart because they see God's purpose in who they are. They see God's beauty in themselves, not what people say about them, not what people want the world to think about them, but what God thinks about them. Verse 9, blessed are the peacemakers, not in this world. Blessed are the peacemakers. Happy are the peacemakers. Let's put it that way. Happy are the peacemakers, for they will be called children of God. The peacemakers are the people who are always found in the middle You ever heard the phrase, the messy middle? That's where the peacemakers are. You see, the peacemakers, they seek reconciliation. They don't seek revenge. They don't seek to start a war and a battle. They seek to, to bring peace. You see, the peacemaker is a kingdom-minded person. Kingdom-minded person. Not a gas city-minded person. Not a renewed life church-minded person. Not your neighborhood, not your, just your house-minded person. But the whole kingdom. We suck at that one. It's not about being pacifist. That's not what a peacemaker is. A peacemaker listens and loves even when they don't like what they hear. But in all of that kind of feeling roughed up, as you read those first kind of 10 verses or nine verses. There's a little bit of solace in the heart of some believers. Verse 10. Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness. For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when people insult you, persecute you, 
falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad. Because great is your reward in heaven. For in the same way, they persecuted the prophets who were before you. I read that this morning again. (laughs) I'm crying, but I'm happy. Because some of you, I need to thank for thinking the evil things that you think about me. And I know majority of them aren't here. That's okay. I'm saying it anyway. I never in my life, and I know I shouldn't, being politically correct, I should not have said any of this, but I'm, here it is. Never in my life would I ever want to treat somebody the way that I've been treated here. I do not feel like a pastor of this church. I feel like a pawn to be used and run over at the expense of your happiness. And you know, and I hate saying it, because the majority of you, this is not you. But a lot of you are friends with the people. And you've done nothing. You know, I told Jennifer that it's killing me. Because my kids don't want to be here. They want to go somewhere else to church. They want to go to somebody else's youth group because of how they see me being treated. That's sickening. I told Jennifer, I said, my heart has always been, I want to be in a church and I want to be a part of a church that loves my kids more than they love me. I haven't felt it in the first church I was at. I haven't felt it here. And I'm not just talking about, hey, I saw they did great on Facebook. Yeah, the people I'm friends with that I don't even know on Facebook, yep, they said they did great too. But I know I'm not perfect either. I know I'm not perfect. But here's the thing I never claim to be. So you cannot and you don't get to judge me by a standard that I never put myself up to. Why did I hire John Pearson to be a pastor with me? Because he has strengths that I don't. But what happened? I got ridiculed because I couldn't do the things he did. So what happened? People started flocking to him and praising him and, oh, you're great and wonderful. And I said, you know, some pastors would get jealous. And some relationships would get torn apart because of that. I've seen churches literally ripped apart 
because of that happening. But John and I said, you know what? And I partially agree with him. He's like, I need to leave. This isn't where I want my kids to be. You guys need to hear this. Not just me as pastor. Another pastor said, I need to leave because this isn't good for my kids. It's not good for me. I don't know what emotion to have in these last few weeks. I'll be honest with you, there's parts of me that just wants to all over social media and just let the world know. But then I'm not any better than them. I don't want to be that. I want to be a pastor. That came. So all of the long pauses last week was me stopping myself from doing all that. Didn't work this week, sorry. I'm going to stop. Stand with me. If you would, just reach out your hands and receive this blessing. Jesus, I thank you for showing us a picture of what you see in the beauty of your church. I thank you that even through all of the ugliness that we bring to humanity, you see through it and see that it's possible for us to be blessed, for us to be happy, when we seek you. If we seek the praises of man, we will not be happy. We will not be blessed to the degree that you mean for us to be blessed. Speak into our hearts. Heal our hearts. You are the master, and we are the clay. God, we thank you that when the clay dries and gets dropped, you know exactly how to put it back together again. For we are clay in the master's hands. Amen.